This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to another episode of The Stateless Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, and I'm so pleased to be back. The weeks keep getting better in terms of guests. Um, we had a, a great weekend, week last week with Ron Paul and many other incredible guests. And if you haven't signed up for the weekly email, you can get that at thestatelessman.com to get a preview of all, all shows and an update of the archives as they, as they come through. I should mention our sponsor is amtgs.com. That's AMTG Solutions for Digital Media and Web Development. And today, it is my pleasure to introduce Elena Ball, my co-host. How are you going there? Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me here. Right now, so Elena, she contributed the article on Hugo Chavez a few weeks back on thestatelessman.com. And if you haven't seen that, uh, it's really worth a read. She is a native of Venezuela and has spent about 10 years outside of the country now, a couple of years in the UK and the rest of it in the United States. So she's a well-traveled lady. And she gave a very... So insightful perspective, which also drew further interaction that she got, she came on the show to speak for one of the segments and then she accepted an interview with WGSO in Louisiana. Uh, those clips are all available through the newsletter, which I said is at thestatelessman.com. And I'm going to post during the break the a link to her article on the Stateless Man Facebook page. If you're not on that page, do it. Uh, that's the most active for, interactive forum for the Stateless Man. And each week, through the newsletter, I seek to highlight a feature article, one that I think will be compelling, uh, worth your time. And this week, the article is titled The Retirement Plan Racket. Now, through Twitter, I came across the author of this article, Paul Sipple. He wrote a much longer article, and I, I encouraged him to work on a shorter one that would be, you could say, more uh, approachable to a, a wider audience. And it is up on thestatelessman.com, and it is the feature article this week. Now, the key theme in this is that basically retirement plans are vulnerable to what we can describe as regulatory capture. That's a notion in economics that basically when we assume we're going to regulate an industry or protect consumers from an industry, inevitably the people who actually control those regulations are the major players within that industry, not the consumers, because there's, there's a disproportionate cost-benefit gain to involvement. Each one of us has minimal interest in actually participating in that process. But if you actually work in the industry, you have a great incentive to participate. And there is a, um, I'm not sure what the best term, economic term is for it. Elena, help me out here. But no, so, so basically there is a disproportionate cost-benefit return to engaging in that process, which favors insiders. And that is what uh, we have, particularly in the United States. That's his area of specialty. His website is paulsipple.com and he's on the line with us, which is great. So, Paul, I'm, I'm really glad we could uh, get your article out in a shortened form, and I'm looking forward to ge- generating traffic, and I, I thank you for coming on the show as well. So uh, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Right, and, and yeah, so let's, let's start with this term. You say the retirement plan is a racket. I had to confirm that that was actually a word in American English. I know we use it in New Zealand, but what do you mean by a racket? Well, what I mean is that the very problems that, 
the industry purports to solve from a, uh, for us and the very challenges that the industry uh, claims that we face and uh, wants to protect us from uh, are actually created by the industry uh, itself. Uh, as an example, there's a retirement shortfall that many people claim exists because Social Security is perhaps not going to be there for a lot of younger people, and that Social Security, even if it is there, is not sufficient to help people fully fund their retirement. And that's why we need the advice of financial advisors to help us with retirement. But yet it's the actual financial advisors themselves that are actually the excessive and hidden fees that are taken out of our accounts. I see. So you basically are saying they're the ones that are making us our savings less valuable when we come to retire. So we're therefore less dependent upon them. Yes. What, why is this not subject to a competitive competitive forces where some retirement planners will say, well, we'll actually give you a better return, and if they don't, be subject to, you could say, cleansing of the market? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question because there is some degree of competition in the industry, and this is what's, uh, I believe, so scary about uh, what some people describe as corporatism or even economic fascism. And the private sector is not completely uninvolved. I mean, the, the private sector is very much involved. And unfortunately, the private sector, however, gets blamed for the problems that are created because they're involved, when in reality it's the uh, control over the resources of the private sector that the public sector exercises that actually cause a lot of these problems. And to give a little bit more specific example and some evidence, uh, the Investment Company Institute uh, did a study showing how mutual fund costs are actually decreasing at a more rapid rate outside of 401k plans than within 401k plans. You would think that with all the large buying power that these large retirement plans have, that you would be able to buy mutual funds at a lower cost, at an increasing lower cost within the retirement plan, but that's not true. Uh, so in reality, it's the industry that's causing these problems that they're purporting to solve. Sure. What, and Elena, also, Paul, and because of this, uh, you also get uh, participants also get a limited amount of mutual funds which they could invest in, right? Uh, yes, yes, a absolutely. In some cases, if you know enough to know how to set up the plan, you can set it up so the choices are not limited. But in most plans, uh, the investment choices, there's a wide array of choices, but there are only certain choices that have significant fees built in that the retirement plan provider has approved. And my analogy is to school vouchers, where people think that we have a choice when we have public school or, or private school vouchers, but it's really only a limited choice based on which schools the government approves. No, I know. I've actually written about the problem with school vouchers and how I think I think describing a school choice is a little bit misleading because the reality is. You just get a, a limited choice, and you're still dependent upon other people's money. And it make, to make it worse, that often government officials will use that, that money as a tool to control what were formerly independent or private schools and basically convert them into public schools. So, uh, Yes. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're approaching the next break. So let me just say we're, we're speaking with Paul Sipple, and his website is paulsipple.com. I've posted a link to his article, which is on, this, on the Facebook page, if you have a question for this man, he's an independent financial advisor, you can call in at 1-888-741-7472. You can also email me, ferg at thestatelessman.com. So 
Stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. Your website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit our website at amtgs.com or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. That's international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And I'm pleased to be joined by Elena Ball today, co-hosting with me. It's great to be here. Right on. So we are speaking with Paul Sipple of paulsipple.com. He's written an article, The Retirement Planning Racket, a lengthy one on his own site and a, an abridged version. If you want to get to the heat of the meat in the, uh, in the Stateless Man uh, version, it's just the statelessman.com, the lead article right now. And that also went out in today's newsletter. Now, Paul was explaining what leads to this, you could say, public-private partnership or economic fascism or corporatism, whatever, you want, whatever, whatever word you want to use that explains the fact that nominally private companies are using the power of government to transfer your wealth to them, basically to trick you into doing so. Now, this is where I, re- I really wanted to expand upon the article, which I think does explain that point, and I included a, a video in bed to explain what regulatory capture is. What then do you say to people? I mean, you are a specialist in the United States. Let's let's give some thoughts on what people in the United States might want to do, and then we can discuss more more broadly about planning for one's retirement. Well, it's never a bad idea simply to try and educate yourself, um, and not just about learning how to retire, because the, the mantra is we need to figure out how to uh, retire comfortably, and uh, financial freedom is a big uh term that we've heard over and over, and how can we have more financial freedom? I believe that we need to understand freedom on a larger scale, and that freedom is an entire package, and that civil and economic liberties and financial liberties are all intertwined, and we can't have financial freedom if we don't have other freedoms as well. Hmm. Well, that's that's one of the things, one of the phrases I might use often, that people don't want freedom because that implies responsibility. You've got to take care of yourself. And so some people... I think there, there's a two, there's a flip side to it. Now, you said just to educate yourself. I mean, we are trying to educate ourselves. And one one thing that you might want to like to comment on is the book Rich Dad Poor Dad. And there, Robert Kiyosaki he actually doesn't really recommend specific retirement saving, rather than just basically building up investment income throughout your life, regardless of when you may choose to move on from a job. Uh, yes, and I've re- I've read that book, and there are some. Uh, basic uh, useful insights in that book, just comparing uh, the rich dad uh, to the poor dad. And I think it focuses quite a bit on entrepreneurship and personal responsibility and that learning doesn't necessarily only take place in a classroom, but through real-world experience as well. And that's really what uh, has and will continue to generate wealth. And in terms of uh, retirement, uh, retirees turning to financial advisors for for their plans, uh, you say that their license licensure 
regulations actually uh, they're not necessarily more informed than than oh. you than Yes, very much so. We have this idea that anyone who is licensed, and that doesn't just apply to financial advising, but I'll, I'll keep to this uh, topic, yeah. that people have this idea that financial advisors have this superior insight and knowledge about what financial markets are going to do in the future and what to invest in because they're financial advisors and they have this uh, license that's issued by the government that automatically guarantees their expertise and credibility. And I believe in the absence of mandatory licensure requirements that people will naturally more scrutinize the qualifications and credentials of a financial advisor and may ultimately come to the conclusion that the financial advisor doesn't necessarily know much more than they do. Right. Actually, I'm going to read a brief passage from your article because this it hits that, that point exactly quite Plan sponsors and participants now have a false sense of security, while retirement plan providers continue to increase their fees, enjoy protection from competition, and keep consumers in a state of ignorance. I think that's just so important that, like you said, that assuming that someone else is going to do your homework for you is just a recipe for disaster, and that people will use that laziness or sloppy thinking to take advantage of you. To me, the key point from medical basic is, yes, we, we can observe that people are I don't know if taking advantage of you is the best way, but basically not presenting you with the best options possible and don't just, don't just let other people, don't, don't just, don't just assume other people are taking care of you because they say so because they're licensed. And one field that I am more familiar with, with regards to licensing is education. And I was a teacher in New Zealand. I've taught uh, at university economics and the notion that somehow going through these schools of education makes you a better educator, I think is just uh, bizarre really. And the, the reality is that it really just weeds out people who have an independent mind who don't want to go through these silly processes and want to, want to teach in, in an independent manner. Now, uh, let me just look what, it, what else we have here. I included one of these images. If anarchy supports mega corporations, then why don't mega corporations support anarchy? How do you respond to people who believe that a greater freedom in the financial realm uh, would just lead to a consolidation of power? Well, uh, that is a, and I'm, uh, I've seen that before, and I think that's a, a fantastic way to uh, explain it. I uh, will give an example of uh, Ron Paul, who um, some of those types of people have some sympathy for, and then I explain about co- large corporations like Goldman Sachs, and I would then ask them the question, well, if you believe that more freedom would represent a consolidation of power of the very companies that you don't want to have more power, why is it that companies like Goldman Sachs hate Ron Paul and will also contribute equally to both the Democratic and the Republican parties? That's true that it would result in more consolidation of power. Then why are the people who stand to benefit from the consolidation of power so against freedom, and you can prove it simply by following the money. Yeah, well, th- in those cases, I don't think they really have any, any ideological concern. They're just basically trying to open the doors to whoever gets into power. That's why they, they give it. They don't care which party, so long as the door is open to them to to lobby to that person. And the people who already control the financial industry, they're happy with the status quo, you could say, rather than any sort of major uh, opening up of that process. Now, I'll, I'll say. One thing about the future, one thing that, that has concerned many people is just the enormous transfer of wealth from young to old within the United States or just through superannuation schemes in general. 
Paul, what do you make of the prospect? I mean, many people have just have said that, and I would argue this too, that there's just no way the conventional social security system will be here, let's say, in 30 years' time. Yes, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I believe it's bankrupt already, and it's simply uh, money funded out of uh, you know our existing labor, and there's no money in it right now. Right. And what have you ever recommended people to? Let's say you ha- I have limited retirement funds. I know when I was living in Ecuador, people would move down there to basically spread their money further. Do you ever recommend that, or have you looked into that prospect? Um, I don't. Sp- within the realm of what I do is 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 somewhat narrow, and I it's not necessarily allowed within a a four hundred one k plan to to have those options. But mm-hmm. but to simply give advice and to uh, protect your money truly. I, I do make suggestions like that, namely hard assets like owning physical gold and silver. And I think that really serves as the ultimate form of protection uh, against fiat currency. Right. Okay, Paul. Well, uh, we are going to post this interview up within your article. If people want to read Paul's article, it is available at thestatelessman.com. It is the lead one and also in the newsletter. Uh, his site is paulsipple.com, where there's an expanded version of that article. If you go to the bottom of the article on my page, I link through to that. So, uh, Paul, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to being able to share this more widely later on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Right on. So, folks, next up we're going to have uh, – who do we have up? We're going to be discussing uh, how to find a career in liberty, basically, which actually it, it is possible, and it, it sort of follows a theme of turning your passion into your vocation. We're going to have Anthony Ewing from Learn Liberty. So stay with us. This is The Stateless Man and Elena Ball on the Overseas Radio Network. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. Welcome back to The Stateless Man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders, and we have Anthony Ewing on the line. She is a manager of libertyguide.com, which is a, a portal to making work in the liberty movement your vocation, which is a recurring theme because many of us, we love that. We want to promote the ideas of freedom uh, beyond borders, in this case, on the show, and one of the questions I have is uh, this this trade-off between graduate school and employment or, or internship experience. And I think many people have that question. How do you counsel people in terms of the value of, let's say, a master's degree, which may take two years, versus a year of internship and a year of work experience? I would argue that it depends on what you ultimately want to do. So if you want to get into academia and you want to – become a PhD where you teach students the, the ideas and the education behind it, and you should probably take the route of going towards the, the PhD and perhaps master's to get to that way. Um, now, let's say you think that you're much better at talking to people and marketing ideas and that sort of thing, then you should maybe consider going and getting an internship and developing those relationships and the skills you need to do that. You don't necessarily need a master's degree to um, send mass marketing emails. Um, it's always great to have that proof that you've done something uh, educational with your career, but to, to do the nuances of the job, you don't necessarily need an education. Right. I'll say that the most recent think tank that I worked for, the president, just had a bachelor's degree. That seems to almost be the tendency that 
the more executive side of side people don't need uh, graduate education. Often the researchers they will need it, and I'll, I'll say that I've navigated the think tank realm without a graduate or without a master's degree, just with two bachelor's degrees, and it has been a challenge at times. So many think tanks, particularly in let's say Canada, they will just assume that basically it's a starting point or a necessary starting point to have a graduate degree but you can you can overcome that if you have kind of star power or something like that but it, it is it is a consideration like you said if you go in more the academic realm and you could say the lead scholar realm but i mean yeah i so don't like you said there's no hard and fast answer to that but what do you have something to add there elena no is there is there a certain um speciality that you i know you said you mentioned before that you do some scholarships for certain graduate studies do do these tend to be more of a speciality subject? Yeah. Do you, do you do focus on specific areas? Yeah. Right. Well, we want to help the students who are interested in promoting the ideas of a free society with their education. Um, so, if you're notably, if you're looking in economics, political science, philosophy, and history, and doing research that goes in line with promoting these ideas, we really want to help you out and make sure that you're not struggling through school. Um, through a lot of a lot of different types of programs, we have one. It's uh, it's up to seventy five hundred dollars per year, where we just it's basically just a scholarship that you can spend on your studies. We have other types of scholarships where we'll help you pay for uh, application fees or travel to seminars or travel to events. And so it varies on the, the type of investment we have, but we want to help you out. Additionally, we have programs where you can come for two to three days and practice your paper and work with other professors who think like you on your paper to make sure that it's well-developed and you're making strong arguments. Mm. There's many programs for both those in undergrad and for those interested in academia. Right. I'll say that as long as you can write and you can say take a a strong position, take a position, present your view, present your case in the application, these are very open processes that there's a lot of opportunity and I remember when I first came to the U.S. and received a, a you could say, a, a scholarship to attend one of the Foundation for Economic Education events, I just felt so grateful that this charity was on offer for young people who wanted to expand their minds. So it really is a wonderful, you could say, it's, it's non-profit in a very profitable way in terms of actually bringing, doing some good. Now, you, uh, yeah, you, you did go to graduate school in, in Guatemala, and that's one thing I say to people, to people as well, that, there are ways to get a higher education at a much lower cost abroad. And, and you said that, that Marokin in particular, people took that seriously within the liberty movement. Are there any other foreign universities that you uh, particularly, particularly follow or are familiar with? Um, so universities that will promote the ideas of a free society, Marokin is a great example. There's another one in the country of Georgia called the New Economic School. Um, could be messing up the acronym. So they're doing similar work to what University of Francisco Marroquin is doing, where everyone receives the fundamentals of a free market society and uh, individual liberty and all that. And they're doing great work over there. In fact, I think even Georgia, on a in terms of economic freedom, is is gaining faster than its neighbors because they're taking a lot of these students and applying them to government positions, and they're they're really living out the ideas um, politically. Incredible, yeah. And one thing too, I wanted to say is that. If you're going to be getting work in the liberty movement, a good start is just basically just go to the events, show your interest, go along and network. I mean, when I was looking for work, I would just go along to, this is up in Canada, the Manning Center, the Fraser Institute, they would host events up in Calgary, 
and I'll just go along and meet people and ask them, you know, are you looking to hire anybody? What, 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 what do you need? And having a face to a name seems like a great first step. And that's the case with IHS and the Liberty Guide, I imagine, as well. Absolutely. You definitely have to get you and your skill set known among those who have the power to hire you. Um, and networking is the best way to do that. Uh, unfortunately, the, the movement is oftentimes based on who you know. To open that door, it, it largely depends on what you know to make sure you can do the job. But you get out there and meet as many people as possible. And that's the best way to grow networks, to grow friendships that will inevitably lead to your uh, personal and professional success. Actually, while we have the chance, I'll just say that if people are these jobs are on this particular site is just uh, just with uh, the United States, but for more senior positions, there is the website talentmarket.org, and click it'll takes care of that. She also does. Yeah, she's wonderful. <laughs> right, she's, she does some um, seminars that give advice as well. And I think that just the the key message to me, and this is why I wanted to have Anthony on, is that basically there is a whole range of different uh, employment prospects, and. If you're maybe you like me and I really like to get some meaning out of my work, then it's a great place to go. Now, do you have any big success stories you want to point to of people who have gone through Liberty Guide and become like a John Stossel or something like that? <laughs> so Liberty Guide does focus on zero to five. Um, so we have success stories where people first found out about the Liberty Movement through Liberty Guide. They just did a search on libertarian jobs and happened to find Liberty Guide. And then from there, we have interns who work at IHS who found their jobs through Liberty Guide and other people at Kingo mm. and the Koch Institute and stuff. So we don't have any big names yet because we, we're, we're fairly new. Um, but, you know, we do defer people to Claire and at, at Talent Market, as you mentioned, who are running organizations and making huge differences in the world. Right. And... Well, do you have anything else to add there? Uh, no, I was just wondering that that your experience in Francisco Marroquí uh, yeah. incentivize you to to have this as your career. Yeah, did you already have that in mind before going. No, when I when I first went to Guatemala, I, I went on a completely different mission. I was there to work in an orphanage, but um, Marroquín really introduced me to a lot of the ideas that I uh, find very valuable. In addition to the network that. I now live and work in. So they introduced me to the Institute for Humane Studies, the Koch Institute, and all these great groups that promote these ideas. That's so ironic that you would go to Guatemala to learn about freedom. <laughs> <laughs> in more ways than one. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great, it was a great opportunity. Actually, and did you, did you know Chris Lingle when you were there? He's a... I did not. He, he, we've got an article, I've got an interview, an article with him, which I'm going to post as well on the Salesman page, basically describing... Universidad Francisco Marroquin, and it's titled, I think, intellectual, intellect, an intellectual oasis in Latin America, or in something, something like yeah. that. But it, it is worth looking into. I'm looking into it all the time. We've just got a, a couple more minutes. Do you want to say, looking back, Anthony, are you? Sometimes I, I, I have questions about this as to whether this nonprofit realm is the way to go. Do you want to just give some thoughts onto, you know, you've chosen it, and I assume you're probably happy staying in this realm, but. Why would one maybe not want to go in the nonprofit direction? I think it really depends on what you're really good at doing, what you really want to do with your life, and how you want to make a difference. Um, one thing to consider is if you do go to the for-profit, you're probably going to make more money than me. Therefore, if you really love liberty, you can donate back to the movement. You can donate to IHS or Cato or to the Institute for Justice. There's yeah. a lot of different ways to contribute to freedom, even if you're not doing a job for it. Yeah. That reminds me what John Mackey had to say at the Students for Liberty Conference that 
he is not so excited about the nonprofit realm. He says that uh, nonprofits come and beg to him for money, and also governments come and tax him as well. So I said, in the end, economic prosperity really does rest on the private sector and the for-profit realm. Okay, well, Anthony, I'm I'm going to uh, post this website, libertyguide.com, on the Facebook page and link to the one about Guatemala as well. Uh, I look forward Thank to seeing you. it at the next event. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, okay? It's great talking to you. Absolutely. Great talking to you, too. I just want to give a quick shout-out to my husband, Bob, and to my family and to all of Canada. Okay, all of Canada. Hello there. Okay. All of Canada. <laughs> Thank you so much. Catch you later, Anthony. So we, we've got a, a just a couple minutes to the break, and I'll just say that, yeah, the organizations that she works works with, IHS and Liberty Guide, are great, theihs.org. And we caught up at the Students for Liberty Conference, which I'm promoting all the time. We have up next, though, in the, in the second hour, we have what is just a, a bizarre story unraveling in Australia. And I can hardly believe this exists, that basically members of the Australian government are censoring tweets. I'm serious, tweets, which are, what, 40 characters or something? It's not in Venezuela. It's Australia. Yeah, I know, I know. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Do they have Twitter in Venezuela? We do. All yeah. right. Chavez had a huge following. On oh, wow. No one knows if it's true, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who, were they all real followers or right. they just made them up? Right. But anyway, so, yeah, in Australia, they have been blocking or censoring political tweets, which I'm just it just seems so petty and ridiculous, but it's true. So we're going to have a man, uh, David Lopez on to explain that from down under with australiansforliberty.org. So you don't want to miss that. This is the stateless man. And Elena Ball. On the Overseas Radio Network. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network. This is The Stateless Man with Fergus Hodgson. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders, and that is sponsored by AMTG Solutions. That's AMTGS.com for your digital media and web development. And I had the pleasure of a co-host today, Elena Ball. Lovely to be here. Right. And we, uh, yeah, pursuing liberty beyond borders, international living, uh, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And we, right now, we're just trying to line up our guest uh, from Australia, his name is David Lopez, and we're just having a little bit of difficulty with the uh, phone connection or the Skype connection. He was, uh, his microphone didn't seem to be working smoothly. We'll get right to him. In the meantime, we will go through the, uh, the the story that led me to get in touch with him because this is just really crazy. The the deal is that uh, yeah, the Australian government has been censoring um, censoring political speech through Twitter. And that is not exactly kosher. And I'm just amazed that anyone would even care that much because people tweet all sorts of crazy things. And you'd have a pretty hard time stopping any political discussion if you were going to stop Twitter. You're, you're new to this ga- Twitter game, Elena, but yeah. I'll tell you that there's some abusive content on Twitter. So if you're going to be censoring it, you'd have a uh, big job ahead of you. Yeah, no, I'm aware. No, but I'm aware of the content. And yes, exactly. I, I was just wondering how exactly they would censor this type of thing. I don't even know. See, that's the bizarre thing. But I, I did post it. I post a link to the original story. Uh, let me bring that one up because it it is just... Uh, so, he, so, yeah, David Lopez is with Australians for Liberty. And the article comes from this independent website 
politer.com and the title is exclusive. Australian government bans political comment on Twitter. And the, the sub, subtitle is RIP Freedom of Speech Australia 2013. A little known policy slips quietly under the radar in January 2000 as our friends at Twitter announced they will censor tweets. Quote, if a country requests them to do so. So Twitter is complicit in this actually. How oh, pathetic. I, I did not know about that part. Yeah. A year later, Australia becomes the first modern democ- democracy to identify, filter, and ban free speech while not whilst not in a state of war. I mean, I don't know when when not in a state of war these days. Seems like there's a war going on everywhere. But they they note that you can still see the tweets in other countries, just not in Australia. Yeah, that seems incredible to me. That, it's quite a sophisticated little technique they got going on. But it's just like like I said, it just seems weird that anyone would even care what you put on Twitter. It's, they, they really have some paranoia going on. Yeah, and and in a government in a country like Australia, I wouldn't have thought that possible no yeah i'm amazed too but david lopez the guy we've got we've got him on the line now successfully that's great he mentioned to me an email correspondence that actually a lot more was going on than just censoring twitter that's why i wanted to get him on now so yeah david is with australians for liberty which is just australiansforliberty.org he's the founder and web master for this page and he's also appeared on Liberty, Liberty in Exile, which is a, a program by Yalosovsky, a friend of this program. So, David, I'm really glad to have you on. And I want to, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we've got 20 minutes to examine this further. Thanks for, thanks for staying up really late. I think it's 4 a.m. in Australia right now. Wow. So pretty tough, tough uh, commitment. Yeah, hi. Uh, great, great to be here. And um, yeah, I had to, had to sort of uh, rearrange my sleeping pattern a little bit to be here. But um, yeah, thanks for having me. Right, and, and David, yeah, let's let's back up because you told me that yeah, this this Twitter ban or not ban, but censorship, that's relatively new. But a few was it a few years ago? You were working at a web or an internet uh, registry company. What what was the original sort of personal interaction with censorship that you had? Yeah, um, I was working at a, at a domain registrar called uh, Melbourne. I- I was uh, doing the later shift and uh, got a call around um, between 6 and 7 o'clock at night and uh, it was from a uh, federal police officer or someone claiming to be one who uh, was demanding the uh, website be shut down. Now, this website was um, officeofthepm.org, I believe the domain was, and yes. uh, it was a satirical website. Um now, you know, I was familiar with the procedure that you need to go through to shut down the website. It's a pretty serious thing. Yeah. Uh, and um, generally you need a court order uh, or you need some sort of copyright breach or something to, um, uh, you know... Um, Justify it, sure. ...be in breach of policy, basically. Um, and it didn't fit either of those criteria. Um, now, uh, I, you know said, look, that's what you need to do, and uh, the, he, he said he was calling on, on behalf of the office of the Prime Minister himself, <laughs> on behalf of the Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was that so, how uh, did, yeah? But, he, but did he yeah, give you a name or anything like that? I, I said, what's that, sorry? Did he give you a name or anything like that to check up on him? No. Uh, well, he did give you his name, yes. But, uh, you know, there wasn't much way to, to actually... Um, cross-reference that or anything from where sure. I was. 
but yeah, looking at the website, I could see that it wasn't, you know, it was a political thing. And yeah. said, look, I don't want to get involved in your politics. He's demanding I take it down immediately. Uh, said, look, you know, you have to put your case to, to the policy department, etc. Uh, he, he wanted my name and, um, you know, I, I basically just refused to give it. I said, I, I don't like where this is going and this is political and I don't want to be involved in it. Um, and uh, he went away, you know, not not happy. Uh, but the next day it was shut down. And, uh, shut that he, down? He, uh, the, the, the registrar, the, the, the company. On what uh, grounds? Made a policy decision. Uh, well, on the ground, they told the media the grounds were that it was, um, it looked like a phishing site, uh, which it really didn't fit the bill. It wasn't trying to get anyone's credit card details or get anyone to give, yeah. you know, give any personal details. Uh, the, the big thing about the site was it actually contained a speech, uh, supposedly by, uh, Prime Minister John Howe, this is back in 2006, apologising for, uh, being involved in the Iraq war. Mm. Uh, so that was the embarrassing thing, and then I found out later that it got about ten and a half thousand hits. Oh, that's uh, great! In in about twenty four hours. Yeah, but that that was a, just a satirical Sorry. speech, just kind of joking, and like the like the Onion or something like that. Yeah, very much like the Onion. Yeah, it was it was a, a website that looked for all intents and purposes like the Office of the Prime Minister's website, uh, but it was not a .gov.au website or anything like that. It wasn't. It was obviously not. You know, for anyone who's thinking, would would see what well, Dave, it was. I'm going to ask you to hold hold that thought, mate. We got, we're, we're hard against the break. Uh, this is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. This is the stateless man, and we are speaking with David Lopez of Australians for Liberty regarding uh, the censorship of Twitter. And he just described a story where basically he was working at a web domain registry company, and he received a call from the prime minister's office from some kind of policeman demanding that he take down a sat- political satire website, which had a speech from John Howard, kind of mocking Australian involvement in, or a, sat- a satirical speech from John Howard, apologizing for in- supporting the invasion of Iraq with Australian troops. Now, more recently, though, the Australian government officials have sought to try and control Twitter as though people writing these, what, little wee tidbits are, are getting under the, on their nerves. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's just ridiculous. So ridiculous. I, I, like, I'm just thinking, how, how, like, it's just so childish. But So what exactly is happening, David, with, with this Twitter censorship? Is this big news down under? It's not... Huge news. Um, it's one of those, you know, tech byline sort of stories, I suppose. I haven't really seen it around. But, uh, yeah, look, it, it's not real new, uh, this sort of behaviour from the Australian government. I mean, uh, back in two, late 2009, early 2010, uh, uh, both sides of the state parliament of South Australia uh, passed a law uh, to um, uh, ban anonymous Political comment on blogs and, and, and social media, uh, just in well, time for their uh, their state election. Would you have um, to have a full your full them. legal name with all comments then? That that was the idea that you had to use your real name when you made a political comment during the election. Do you have uh, like to call your so, names when we speak in public? When I talk to Elena here, I have to say, "My name is Fergus Hutchinson." <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
I don't, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you have to, have to introduce yourself before you, you comment to anyone. Yeah. So that, that's what they were trying to do. And uh, it actually did get a huge backlash. Um, there was a massive outcry publicly, and um, they, they repealed that. Uh, so it only lasted, uh, you know, I think three months or something like that. But they had to have a go. And, and, and what's funny is that I, I hear the same thing coming up in certain states in America, that, that same issue and trying to pass the same sort of law. So, uh, you know, that, that's interesting. Well, I'll tell you that what has happened in New Zealand in this realm is that in a similar fashion, all, quote, political speech in public has to be associated with a name and an address. I'm totally serious. If you if you hear the advertisements on on radio, at the end of the advertisement, any sort of advertisement that can be construed as political will have a name and an address tagged to it. And even the billboards, below the billboard, there will be a name and address. They'll often have just some generic name like P.O. Box something. But I'm just going, this is creepy. Why do you have to give where you live or whatever when you say something political, it's, it's just like, we want to identify you so we can come and get you. You have yeah. to give your ad full Yeah, address. I mean, at the same time, you've got parliamentary privilege where you can pretty much say what you're... There's not much accountability in Parliament, I guess is what I'm saying, whereas everyone else has to be absolutely accountable. What does this mean more broadly in terms of the sort of respect for freedom of thought in Australia? People, Because I'll say that here in, in North America, people seem to look primarily to Latin America and then to New Zealand and Australia as expatriation destinations. I mean, that's just my sense, but what do you say to people about the respect for freedom of thought down under? Uh, well, I mean, in my experience, the way I came away from that was that the, the Prime Minister uh, is, is like a mafia don who uh, you know, leans on people and, and, and coerces sure. people into, into doing things that he wants them to do with possible personal consequences. I mean, uh, uh, that's, that's the way I see it, and I see all this other stuff, this accountability for everyone but the politicians, uh, as being a, a mafia-type situation. Did you release that? What were you going to say there, Elena? No, uh, I was just... What surprises me is that you said that there wasn't that big of a backlash with this Twitter censorship story as there was with the comments during the election. Why do you think that is that people aren't aware of that, or? Yeah, why was there not such a strong um, backlash to this Twitter one? Is that because so few people are on Twitter? I mean, in New Zealand, very few people seem to be on Twitter. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the commenting one uh, back in South Australia was uh, a bit broad, and um, sure, uh, it, it, there was no direct mechanism. It, it was. So ridiculous. I don't, I don't know why it's not so public now about the Twitter. I guess it's kind of uh, just not reported. And uh, uh, the other one was, was very, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it was in a major newspaper and all that kind of thing. You know, one thing about this website that it's on, I mean, one thing with, with Twitter, it's so subtle. You can hardly tell that the tweets can't be seen, right? Because they're still there. They just can't be seen in Australia. And then... Only a small minority. It's not like every person who's commenting, which is probably half the population, uh, is being told what to do. So it's just a small minority of people who perhaps write sensitive tweets who are being who are victimized by this this sort of policy. But I'll just mention too, this website, Politer or Politer, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. They uh, they are, if you go go to their about, they say they're basically a home for freedom of speech. And they've had their Twitter account banned a whole bunch of times. So 
are you getting most of your news on this event through Politer? And do you want to explain that website if you're familiar with it? Oh, look, I'm not I'm not real familiar with it. Um, I had that story passed to me through Facebook, uh, yeah. a, a Facebook page, um, Australian Celebrity, and uh, well, forward slash Australian Celebrity, and uh, it just it just crossed my path. So I'm not a, a, a big one on that website. Um, I mean, I do get my news from a lot of sources. Uh, it, it was also written about on Gizmodo, um, and uh, I think that's where they kind of sourced their information from. Was uh, partly was was one of their sources was Gizmodo. Um, so yeah, I don't know much about that website. What is next? I mean, if they're censoring Twitter, what is then? What do you think is the prospect of? I don't know, censoring Facebook or what, or YouTube or whatever else is out there. Yeah, I see Twitter as a testing ground, um, one that, that, that where Twitter gave them access and, and changed their policy to, to under the pressure of whoever. Yeah, Facebook, uh, you know, I'm sure the government's already, uh, or governments around the world are already monitoring Facebook accounts and uh, uh, they're already advertising all over it. There's already, um, Actually, uh, you know... Yeah, the Labor Party is actually uh, advertising heavily, but yeah. We're really, we're coming up on the next break, and we've got an, an, a guest lined up for after this one, so we're going to have to uh, end it there, David, but um, again, thanks for staying up so late in the, in the night or morning, however you want to describe it, and if people want to read more about this topic, go to the Stateless Man Facebook page, and I've just posted two links, they can check that out through Australians for Liberty and this Politer website, so thanks again, uh, David. No problem, thanks. Right on, so I just want to mention before we go to the break that did you have something to say, Elena? No, I was going to say that a friend of mine started a Facebook page here in North Carolina, basically mocking the state treasurer, right? And she deserved it actually. <laughs> and she basically was—I uh, think it was Fire Janet Cow. And I, because I used to work in fiscal research here in North Carolina, right. I knew this this lady was corrupt as they come. And she was an incumbent, and there was just so much dirt on her that this, that this Facebook page was revealing. And it, Facebook shut down that page, I think, three times. She had oh, to wow. restart the page. And this lady was just ridiculous. I mean, she was just ridiculous. When she, when she was a state senator, she had proposed mandating twice as many toilets for women in all public places as for men. I'm going, this, this lady, I'm like, <laughs> she's the toilet lady. Anyway, so uh, she'd also proposed you know, extra sets of... Um, how can I describe it? License plates on cars, and and anyway, so this That's was just so incoming. necessary. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But basically, this lady, she somehow her little minions or whatever had managed to get this page shut down on Facebook three times. It was creepy because it was exploding. All this information was just getting out of hand. Now, one of the key themes of the show is open borders and freedom of movement. Now, we're going to be examining this further after the break because. Many people think that the borders around the United States are wide open. They are not. In fact, not only are the borders are strictly enforced, that beyond that, we have this kind of like double borders going on. We're, we're tight on the break, so stay with us. This is the stateless man on overseas right now. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, your online radio resource about life abroad. Welcome back to The Stables Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, and I'm broadcasting live uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina, co-hosted with the lovely Elena, Elena, Ball. Elena Ball. And yeah, in the, in the last half hour, we're going to examine 
uh, you could say the, the, the status of freedom of movement, not only in the borders, but actually within the United States, which is the kind of crazy part about it. Uh, as, as people who've been listening to the show know, uh, freedom of movement is a key theme and we're, we're an expatriation network, overseas radio network and freedom of movement is something to be celebrated, not opposed. And I continue to support that. Anyone who's gone through legal immigration processes know that it's a pain in the butt and that it's, uh, arbitrary and, uh, an impediment to, like I said, a freedom that should be celebrated that has great value. Now, one of the consequences of people who oppose freedom of movement or are afraid of people from other parts of the world, whatever it may be, is that they facilitate the expansion of a police state apparatus because you can't enforce immigration laws without a police state, basically. You need to check everyone's papers, whatever it may be, particularly if there are great disparities across borders uh, in terms of living conditions or salaries, whatever it may be, that induce human trafficking or uh, or illegal immigration. Now, in the case of the United States, we live in this kind of bizarre wor- world of information where many people think that the borders are wide open, that the borders are not being enforced, that we have this soft touch when it comes to illegal immigrants. On the other hand, we have people who think that we're, we have record, who say that we have record numbers of deportations, in fact, more than 400,000 in one year, which is quite a large number of people. Uh, and each deportation I'll say in the United States costs at least $12,500. That's the lowest number I could come up with. My own calculation came to around $30,000, given all the paperwork and hiring these security guards, whatever it may be, to actually deport someone. Now, this is coming close to home because this police state apparatus is manifesting itself with inland border checkpoints. I'm serious. They call them border checkpoints or immigration checkpoints. Mm-hmm. They're not even at the damn border. And you're just driving along the road, and you'll have, and I've been through one of these. When I drove down to Mexico in 2011, and I'd come back up, they stopped me and said, "Are you a U.S. citizen?" I said, "No." Huh. <laughs> 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 and they, they uh, let me keep going, I guess, because um, didn't look very dangerous. I don't know why, but yeah, they just they didn't even look at my papers. They just I just said no, and they kept they said keep on going. That's fine. And so, but anyway, so they they stop you even when you're in the United States, and this is actually illegal although they don't seem to care about that. It's ironic when people are trying to enforce the law by breaking it at the same time. Incredible. Yeah, so, but there are some YouTube clips out just showing people who are actively defying the silliness. And one man is Guillermo Jimenez, and he is, did I pronounce that? Help me with the pronunciation here. Yeah, that was, that was pretty close. Uh, Guillermo Jimenez, right. Guillermo You got it. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> he is the, he is the host of his own show, which is Traces of Reality. And am I correct in saying that you're from Nuevo Laredo? Uh, from Laredo, from Laredo, Texas. Uh, uh, Nuevo Laredo is the, uh, I guess, the sister city uh, right across the border in Mexico. Okay, I got myself mixed up there. Um, right, right. It's, it, it's easily confused. <laughs> right, because I did, that's actually where I drove down to. Right. When I was in, I, living, I was living in New Orleans, but I had to renew my visa, so I had to get to the border somehow and come back in. And I just road tripped it down there. Anyway, yeah. so... How long have these? Well, let, let me say let's let's understand your show better. Traces of reality. Sure. What is the key theme of your show? 
Well, the, the key themes that we, we concentrate on are, I guess, similar to your show. We talk a lot about liberty. Uh, we talk about the struggles between liberty and, and tyranny as we see them. Sure. And, uh, and as I've, I've been focusing a lot, uh, on these issues of checkpoints on the police state, uh, and especially the drug war, which is something that, that hits close to home being from, uh, along the border of South Texas. It's something that we see uh, on a regular basis. Um, and not just, I don't I, what people, when I, when I say that usually think I'm referring to the, the violence of the drug war, but that's part of it. I'm also referring to the, the police state that grows out of this, uh, uh, drug war, uh, quote unquote drug war that we're supposedly fighting. Um, so we focus a lot on that. We talk a lot about those issues, uh, a lot of the broader issues of, again, the, the police state, uh, the surveillance state, uh, and, and possible solutions to that. I guess, uh, the, the whole theme of traces of reality is just to, to kind of hold up a mirror to reality and, and, and sort of dig deep within the issues and try to figure out, you know, what's really happening and, and try to get people to question their surroundings, basically, is, is the basic idea behind it is just question what's around you just because things are, uh, this way, does that mean that's the way they're supposed to be or necessarily need to be? And that's the basic theme of the show. Right. And I'll just say that it's, it fits the same line that one of my friends, uh, Yael Osofsky, a regular guest on this show, he says basically question the narrative because right. as I was saying in the, in the lead into introducing you, it seems like people live in different worlds of information. Mm-hmm. Some people seem to think that, you know, there's, there's just no enforcement. Others of us realize that actually that we are building a police state and it's really very concerning. And I'm just astounded that this kind of these disparities can exist. Now, right. I know many illegal immigrants here in North Carolina, and one of them was telling me that prior to 9/11, uh, one could more easily get into the United States, and she can cannot go back home. What uh, what do you say in terms of the sort of grad in terms of the progression? How recent have these inland checkpoints, for example, come into existence? Well, the interesting thing about the checkpoint here, uh, by my hometown of Laredo, Texas, it's about 40 miles north of the border. Sure. Uh, that, that checkpoint has actually existed for, for close to 40 years now. Well, and so we've, we, yeah, we've had a couple of generations, uh, grown up, uh, around the border who are quite accustomed to these things. Uh, but I will say this though, she is correct in, in saying that because after 9-11, uh, after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, mm. uh, the checkpoint was was drastically uh, expanded. In fact, it used to be about 20 miles from the border. They 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 shut that one down, tore it down, and uh, built up this this massive massive checkpoint about 40 miles from the border, and it's huge. I I, I don't I haven't traveled much along the southern border uh, of other states, but I'm willing to bet. That this is one of the bigger ones. Uh, it's equipped with uh, facial recognition cameras. Uh, it's, it's equipped with all kinds of fancy police state gadgets, uh, and, and it's really a, quite a sight to see for anyone who has not been down here. Uh, I know you just mentioned you were down here uh, a year or two ago, so I'm sure you, you, you witnessed that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's funny. It's not only on their way back up, but as you travel down towards Laredo, again about about the 40 mile marker, mm. uh, there are facial recognition cameras. Uh, who grab your photograph as you travel down towards uh, Laredo, Texas? It's really quite strange. Hmm, that is interesting because I I did not know they were so old. And but when has the civil disobedience come into play? Have people always been resisting this, or are you relatively a newcomer, or are you one of the only people resisting? What happens? I mean, just to give people a sense. Yeah. For what is the situation with civil disobedience? Well, you know, uh, we've been seeing these these checkpoint videos on YouTube more and more lately. I guess the, the first one that I remember seeing. 
was probably either uh, uh, Terry Bessie's uh, Bressie rather, sorry, of CheckpointUSA.org. Mm. Uh, he's been putting up YouTube videos challenging checkpoints in Arizona since 2007, 2008. And also, uh, the one, I guess the one that was, uh, uh a bit more, uh, infamous, I suppose, is, uh, Pastor Steve Anderson's videos. Yeah. Also in Arizona. And that was around 2008 as well. He got, uh, tapped, yeah. did he not? They, they broke his window. Oh, tased. oh, that was brutal. Right. He, he was, he was, uh, they broke his window, tased, uh, the, the, the glass shatters from the, from the, from the, the agent breaking the window. And then they slam his face into the, into the broken glass. It was really quite brutal. Uh, that was all caught on camera. Uh, uh, he was running camera. He, he's been doing this for a while, and I guess he. he and I, I bring that up because uh, you know, I've been asked that question: uh, Why do you bother recording these things when you go through these checkpoints? Do you just want attention? Do you just want YouTube hits? And, and really, I, I, what I've been telling people is that you know, if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna engage in civil disobedience, if you're gonna go through these checkpoints and resist their authority or resist their supposed authority, uh, and you don't have a camera rolling. I don't know what you're thinking because many, many times that is your defense, that is your shield against, yep. against stuff like that, against getting your, your face smashed through glass, uh, basically. Right. But, but, <laughs> but just to, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Say that that's the problem I have too, that at the actual real border, they don't allow any recording devices. Exactly. And when you ask questions, well, just don't, don't ask any questions because <laughs> they will, they'll, They'll, are you playing word games with me, sir? You know, and I've, I've had terrible experiences. And on that, that same trip, I basically got taken. I, I, well, we've got just 30 seconds to the break. So I'll just explain it quickly that basically they asked me for my fingerprints to come back into, into the United States. And I said, I don't think Canadian citizens need fingerprints to come to the U.S. And that was just the wrong question to ask. Yeah. Basically, this big guy standing up against a wall. And in the end, I like said, look, if I have to give them, okay, because I don't want to be stuck back in Mexico. Okay. But look, they, uh, let me think. Basically, they required me to give actual ink fingerprints, and they had all these men around me holding my arms, making me want to just like, push them off me. So, but we've got to go to the break. So, hold there. This is the stateless man on the overseas radio network. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com, the station to help you reach your dream destination. This is a stateless man. We're pursuing liberty beyond borders. And we've got uh, Elena Ball here. In the, in the final segment, we're speaking with Guillermo Jimenez of Laredo, Texas. And we're just discussing basically his amplification or scrutiny of these border checkpoints are actually away from the border and his civil disobedience, which uh, there are lots of videos on YouTube now showing people just disobeying these illegal checkpoints. And he said that this is a, a relatively small town, so people in the break were discussing this now know him. What has been the, the consequence to your, you could say, personal relations in the community? Yeah, you know, again, I got into a little hot water over this video because uh, Laredo, Texas is a city of about 200,000 people. Uh, it's not that big. Uh, everyone kind of still kind of knows each other. Uh, and, uh, I think, uh, I was just told recently that, uh, the, the agent featured at the very beginning of the video, the, the younger looking one, okay. uh, is actually, uh, a roommate to the sister of my friend's wife. <laughs> nice. So it's a, it's a kind of a, you know, weird six degrees of separation kind of thing. But, but not just that, but, uh, a, a kind of a, a really, really weird, uh, situation occurred, uh, about a week or two after the, uh, the video was put up on YouTube. Mm. Uh, I was getting stopped around town, you know, uh, 
local grocery store or what have you. I say, like, oh, did you make a YouTube video? And they'd recognize me from it. Okay. Uh, but but I was living in an apartment complex at the time, and um, I went in as I usually would to 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 you know pay my rent in person. And the uh, the, the leasing manager there uh, asked me, hey, uh, did, did you make a YouTube video or something? I said, oh yeah 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 that that's true. Uh, and she says, uh, yeah, you know, because I had a couple agents come by asking about you. Hmm. And I, and I said, you, what? Uh, federal agents coming to the, the public? Uh, yeah, the, the, a couple of, uh, of these DHS, uh, Customs Border Protection agents. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, how, like, I kind of caught me off guard. I was like, what are, what are you talking about? What do you mean they, they came asking about me? He's like, well, they wanted to know if you still lived here. I guess they looked you up or something. And, and, and it, it caught me so off guard that I really, didn't really follow up with any questions after that, but I just kind of just left my rent and went on my way. But just to give you an idea of, of, of what the atmosphere here is like, uh, what, regarding these checks, Points. I mean, it, it just give folks some perspective. Uh, along here on the border in Laredo, Texas, mm. border patrol agents are, are really idolized. They're 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 st- held up on this pedestal. They're never to be questioned. It's it's really quite remarkable. Well, yeah. See, I, I see those people as just a pain in the butt. I mean, I can't. I, I was yeah. sort of saying that during the break too. That they their, their personalities are so sweet. You can't ask them <laughs> questions. So. Right. They're used to <laughs> most people don't question authority, but I wasn't. Yeah. Aware of the fact that it goes beyond the checkpoint, and they actually go and oh, ask yeah. questions. And- yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy. And, and just recently, the uh, I think the the new story that got picked up by uh, a local NBC affiliate that that Jacob Hornberger uh, wrote a story about as well. Uh, that uh, I think you mentioned to me, Fergus, that you 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 saw that story that uh, that Jacob put up on his website. Right. Um, that that local news piece. I mean, if you if you watch it, and I'd reckon folks, you know, you can go to tracesofreality.com and uh, we have the links still up there somewhere you can check it out. Okay. Uh, that that local news piece is is if you watch it, you 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 start to see into the mind of of people who live along the border. Uh, they interview a couple people, uh people, you know, on the street interviews reactions to the video mm. and the reaction they get is, "Oh, that's what's what's that guy talking about?" That's just a waste of time. Border Patrol is just a job. One young lady even says, it's, it's normal. She says this, I, I kid you not. It's normal to answer questions when you travel to another city. That, that's the mentality of people who live along the border. And it's not entirely her fault. They've been conditioned to believe this for generations. And it's only been recently, in the last couple of years, that anyone has bothered to question it. And it's really ruffling some feathers down here. Well, you know what's funny? Just in the in the earlier segment, we were discussing censorship of Twitter in Australia, mm-hmm. and the guest was saying that basically he sort of is a test ground for further censorship elsewhere in the internet. And I see the same same with these checkpoints. That now, if you want to get on a train, soon it's probably going to be buses, and everywhere they're going to want some sort of identification. And I don't want to have to deal with this. And then they're going they're going to want probably TSA at bus stations or train stations as well. They they drive me not crazy enough at the airports. So I'm, I'm concerned that yeah, like like as you probably understand too, that if people don't resist it at the border or near the border, they are going to expand this sort of uh, movement control beyond that realm. Yeah, that, that, absolutely right. That is the danger in all, in all of this, as we're slowly being conditioned to accept these things. And as I said, this checkpoint has existed for 40 years along the border or near the border. Uh, and, and folks here, again, have been accustomed. In, in Laredo, Texas, just for, again, for a little bit of perspective, uh, is a city – uh, where we have a lot of, again, Border Patrol agents, CBP, DH, ICE agents, uh, FBI agents, DEA agents. So, uh, citizens here are quite accustomed to, to dealing with federal agents, uh, either traveling to and from Mexico or traveling, you know, anywhere outside of Laredo. Mm. Um, check, you know, checkpoints are as ordinary as checking the mail, as I've, as I've written about before. 
And so there's a, a danger to that. Uh, you know, I, I see it progressing. You see checkpoints like this expanding uh, to, to other places in the country. In fact, the, the, uh, the Border Patrol claims the authority of, of setting up these checkpoints 100 air miles from, uh, from any border. That's the northern, southern, or eastern and western coasts. Uh, and if you look at, look at that on a map, 100 air miles of the border, that, that encompasses about 200 million American citizens who will have to answer checkpoints as they travel, as they travel even within their own city, possibly. Does that, inc- it's really- that includes the coastline then as well. Exactly. This is, it includes Los Angeles, New York, you know, big cities. So, uh, so, 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 you know, that is the danger that, that we're becoming more and more conditioned to this. We don't really question the police and surveillance state being built up around us. And, and it's going to come to a point where, uh, we're so, we're, you know, we're so thoroughly boiled as it were that, that, the, the parable of the boiling frog. We're so thoroughly boiled that, that we're not going to be able to turn, turn back. And that's what I'd like to, uh, try and prevent by by showing videos like this of of resisting these these things at uh, at the checkpoint. Uh, hopefully, at least gets the questions raised and gets people thinking. Again, this is the way things are, but is it the way that they, they, they need to be or should be? And at, if they just start questioning these things, hopefully we can we can reverse course here pretty soon. That's my concern too. That basically, as as people's mentalities change, reversing this becomes so much more difficult. Yeah, there's, there's no outrage. People just say, what are you doing to resisting these? Get in line, you know, slave. Yeah. Gonna call, what are you going to call people subjects? So I, that's the concern that too, that as, as it becomes normalized, there, even transparency won't make a difference. That even people will just see defiance as a, as a problem rather than an act of basically civ- civil disobedience, which is an honorable or noble activity. Now, I, I wonder too though, why it's different in Loretto, why people are, are less concerned about this because I know in Dubilon, Vermont, there's a town which straddles the border with Quebec, Canada, and there they've had open borders for a long time, or they did until the early 2000s. Now, and that's basically the town was so joined that the library, the border ran right through the middle of the library, and there was a black... Yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) Yeah, and so I know there that people became have become very frustrated because they used to just walk out their door and across the street to, you know, mix with the neighbors in Canada, but they cannot do that anymore. Why has it not occurred in in between Texas and Mexico with just a, a closer relationship? That's an interesting question. I think that raises uh, broader cultural uh, questions about the relationship between uh, United States and Mexico and how immigrants of Mexico are viewed uh, through the pro- to the public eye. Uh, that's, a, I think, a broader, broader issue that we need to examine. Uh, but, but beyond that, I think it's also, I guess, more recently within the last decade has been this, 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 again, the drug war plays a big role. Uh, the threat of, of narco terrorists, you know, crossing the border, uh, which, you know, I have to say, you know, that is a, a more legitimate threat than, say, uh, jihadi terrorists are, which are, you know, basically made of boogeymen. But, but the, 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 the narco terrorists, I mean, are, 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 exist. However, what, if people look into, into it and, and realize that, that these drug cartels that are operating in Mexico are really just factions of the Mexican government itself, well, which is by, ex- by extension, uh, factions 
machinations of the U.S. government because they're the ones pulling all the strings anyway. So uh, if you really look beyond just the surface, you start to realize how this all thing, all this plays out. Uh, but I think that that is at least the pretense that is used uh, to control the border with with the police state and with militarism. Uh, just last summer, we had the military running drills here in Laredo, Texas, uh, for about a month. We had literally tanks in the streets of Laredo, uh, armed military with M16s. You name it. Um, Black Hawk helicopters running, you know, circling patterns around people's homes. It was really quite crazy, but, but, but that's the, that's the, the direction that we're headed in. A complete militarization of the border and, and, and eventually the country as a whole, again, unless we reverse course. And th- to me, there's just an enormous irony that what are we fighting against? People just walking across the border. I'm going, yeah. who cares? I really don't care that this person wants to go and visit his uncle or whatever it may be. And in fact, people forget that these supposed borders have moved all over the place. That the United mm-hmm. States hasn't had a fixed border, and in fact, right and even now, it has kind of messy borders because some parts of the country aren't actually really parts of the country, like American Samoa. People there aren't even U.S. citizens; they're just U.S. nationals. And then you've got Puerto Rico, which is a territory. So you have all these kind of like areas which are gray. And I'm going, why do we even care? What is the whole point? And in terms of these narco traffickers, I I agree. I don't want to mess with those fellas, but I'm saying, I'm saying we know that that's really, you know, do we have a gang problem with alcohol? I mean, no, you know, people can buy it and it's no big deal. Exactly. So exactly. I hope we open our minds and get beyond that. Elena, do you have a comment there? I mean, yeah, no, I think apart from changing people's mentality about, uh, civil disobedience, it's also disseminating the illegality of these checkpoints uh, that I thought. That people um, are aware of it and don't just accept them. Right. Well, actually, in, recently I read it. There was an excellent article in the New York Times, which I posted on the Stateless Man Facebook page, which explained that there was a group of indigenous people, and I, I can't remember their name, the name of them right now. I have to look that one up. But basically, during the Gadsden Purchase, which transferred more land from Mexico to uh, what is now Arizona, New Mexico, and I think California too, mm-hmm. uh, basically some Native American tribes... They were kind of like split in between. And at that time, back in the 1800s, no one really cared. You just walked across. They didn't even really notice that there was a border change because their life didn't change. But gradually, they now are being subject to yeah illegal immigration orders because they go and visit their brothers or whatever across a different part of the country. But they've been traveling this land for centuries. And I just basically, I just want to make people aware of the negative ramifications. And I'm looking to write more about this later this week. Now, before you go... Do you want to just tell us, so tracesofreality.com, do you have a, a podcast? How can people follow your work? Yeah, yeah, I have a weekly radio show on uh, on RBN. Uh, folks can listen to it. If you go to tracesofreality.com, uh, the radio show airs Saturdays between uh, 5 and 7 p.m. Central Time. I guess that makes it 6 to 8 uh, Eastern Time. Sure. Uh, that's on Saturdays. And, uh, yeah, you can find me on tracesofreality.com, links to Twitter, Facebook, YouTube channel. All the rest of that can be found at that website. Right, Gim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for your time, okay? Hey, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Excellent. So Ed, I will say it's also been a pleasure to have Elena on. Thanks for joining us. No, for thanks show. for having me here on none other than the stateless man, stateless man himself's birthday. So happy <laughs> it is, birthday. It is true. It's my 30th birthday today, man. Happy birthday. Very good, yeah. So, folks, I'm, I'm really enjoying these shows, and I'm, like the, the, the momentum is building. If you're not in touch with the, with the show through Facebook, please consider the email sign up, just the statelessman.com on the right hand of the page. We'll be pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders and, uh, more good to come. So come back next week, Monday, 12 to 2 Eastern, uh, daylight time. Otherwise, this is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. 
China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network.